We're going to continue our study on the Holy Spirit, and uh, we've traveled a lot of ground, um, and it's been, I think, good for us as a church to be reminded of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, who the Holy Spirit is, His desire for us as Christians and as a church. This morning we're going to be looking specifically at um, some experiences attributed to the Spirit. And how does the Holy Spirit work in experience? Well, I'd like to read, first of all, 1 John chapter 4, verse 1 through 6, and we'll ask God to teach us. 1 John chapter 4, verse 1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist of which you have heard that is coming and now is already in the world. You are from God, little children. You've overcome them. Because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us, and he who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Let's pray. Our God, we do worship you. As we just sang, we exalt you as the one true God, ruler, creator. Lord, you've given us an incredibly precious gift in your word. And Lord, you've given us your spirit to help us understand it. We desperately need to hear from you. Seems each week we're bombarded by so many voices that would call for our attention. And yet we sit here now as your people asking you by your spirit to teach us. Give us ears to hear. Remove distractions. Give us eyes to see. Hearts that would embrace what you have for us. We know none of this is possible by our own cleverness, our own abilities, but the power of your name. And so we pray it in your name, Jesus. Amen. John, in his letter, referred at the end to the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. How do we discern that? It's not always easy. In John's context, he's speaking about the person of Jesus Christ and those who come and preach Jesus Christ as the one Savior, the way, the truth, and the life. And there are those who don't. Those who preach there's another way. Or we can earn it. Whatever it would be, there's a side of truth and there's error. And remember our goal through this study is to learn together about the Holy Spirit and to be awakened by the Spirit, be able to hear the Spirit and grow in following and walking in the Spirit. A lot of experiences are attributed to the Holy Spirit. There are services throughout the world 
which have manifestations attributed to the Holy Spirit. And how do we know if those are true or not? How do we know if experiences maybe we've entered into are experiences that are truly of the Spirit or maybe are they of error? How do we know that? How do we discern that? It's too easy, I think, for us as Christians, or some, I should say, in the kingdom, to take everything that is, can't be explained or everything maybe that seems or appears charismatic and throw it in a bin and push it aside and say, that can't be of God. Because I can't, I don't understand it. Don't do that. What a dangerous thing that is to do. But what do we do then? We discern. We use biblical truth, a process by which we discern. What experiences are of God and what aren't? What teachings are of God and, and what aren't? And whether your experiences are my experiences, if we evaluate them and find that the scriptures are either silent on them or affirm them, whatever that would be, we rejoice with our brothers and sisters. We rejoice that those experiences have, have drawn them closer to the Savior, even if they're not mine. And that we embrace one another. And we rejoice and celebrate together. And I want to be really, really clear here. This morning, I'm not talking about tongues. I'm not talking about prophecy. I'm not talking about healings. We'll address those in a few weeks. I'm not talking about those experiences. I hope I'm clear on that. What I am dressing and what I am hoping and have been praying for is that together you and I can walk through a process of evaluating an experience that seems to be a growing phenomena and experiences like it. And so my hope is that we can not only evaluate a, process, uh, evaluate a certain experience, but that we can go through a process together of how to do that. I think that's important. I think individually as Christians, we need to know how to discern and to come to right conclusions, not just because we've experienced it or not experienced it or whether we think it's a neat thing or not a neat thing, uh, but that we know how to do it. Two statements I want to make and want to be really clear. Just because someone experiences something doesn't mean it's true. But there's a second statement. Just because someone's experience is different than yours doesn't mean it's false. Two really important statements. Just because someone experiences something doesn't mean it's true. And also, just because someone experiences different than yours doesn't mean it's false. You see, the Holy Spirit works. He affects us in different ways. And we want to test. We want to discern together as a body of Christ so we can build each other up in the faith. One of the questions that I think we need to face in this idea of experiences, is it possible the Holy Spirit can move so powerfully, powerfully on a person that they're totally overcome? Totally. Completely overcome. And is not with that possibility we would need to evaluate whether it's biblical. And we need to consider that about any experience. So don't throw out experiences just because they might not fit in our categories. Don't do that. But this morning I want to walk through a process 
where I believe Scripture guides us to test and to check out an experience. And there's some experiences like this. It's an experience of being called slain in the Spirit. It's also referred to as falling under the Spirit. Resting in the Spirit. And so let's look at that. Let's, let's go through this process of how to discern. First of all, we need to be aware there are sources of alleged supernatural experiences. This isn't surprising to us. There's some that I guess you could call, maybe it's not the best phrase, but self-induced. Hey, we live in a really stressful world and many have almost physical sicknesses brought about by emotional disturbances. And, and so they wrestle with things and experiences and and there's some things they bring on themselves that really can be a source of an alleged experience, a supernatural experience. There's a phenomena you could find in its source in highly charged emotional meetings where there's a sense of not necessarily intentionally brought on, but a sense of pressure. I need to respond in this certain way because I'm told that I need to do it or that there's others around me who are doing it and I would seem out of place if I didn't, that type of thing. And so there is some phenomena that finds its source in highly charged emotional meetings. The source could be satanic. I mean, 2 Corinthians 11, 3 through 11. Let me find it right here. 2 Corinthians 11. Talks about what potentially could be. Verses 13, let's go, yeah, verse 13 and 14 of chapter 11. Paul, now I'm not the context, Paul's talking to church in Corinth. He's talking about there's, there's, there's people out there who are deceiving the saints. And he says, such men are false apostles. They're deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguised himself as an angel of light. Some of these supernatural experiences could find their source to be satanic. And the source could, in reality, though, be God. It could be God. You see, the Holy Spirit is a change agent. He changes lives. He works in ways that surprise us. And he impacts everything. So let's be very clear. We all have unique experiences in our walk with God. I can think of a time when I was watching the sunset. I was out, I don't, it was a few years ago. And I remember I was so overcome and so overwhelmed with the beauty and majesty of God. I was brought to my knees. It's like I just, it was the only response that seemed fitting in that moment. Fall on my knees. Maybe you've had something like that. Maybe you've opened your word, opened God's word, and God's spirit so spoke that all of a sudden one minute turned into two hours. And the only thing you knew coming out of there, I don't know what all happened right now. All I know is I met with God. You couldn't explain it. We've all had those different experiences. But the evaluation we need to make is this experience of God. Is it biblical? We all need to discern those experiences. So let's, let's go through this, evaluating this experience that's attributed to the Spirit called slain in the Spirit. Wikipedia describes this. Slain in the Spirit or slaying in the Spirit are terms used by some Christians to describe a form of prostration in which an individual falls to the floor while experiencing religious ecstasy. Another definition is that happens when a minister lays hands on someone. That person collapses to the floor, supposedly overcome by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
With this definition, obviously, you can include other phenomena, uh, being drunk in the spirit, uh, maybe uncontrollable laughter. Those type of things would certainly fit in this definition. The specifics of the majority of definitions speak to an individual falling over backwards. They can't stand. Some shake in response to what is called the Holy Spirit touching them. I was reading, and if this is true, I found it pretty interesting, that in the 1700s, there was a first recorded event in London which mentions this phenomena, so it's not really a new discussion, um, yet it is one we need to make because it is a growing phenomena in the day we live. So what does Scripture say? Does the Bible give examples of people falling down when confronted by the power of God like this phenomena of being slain in the Spirit? Now, Remember, we talked a few weeks ago about when we approach Scripture, there's two types of Scripture, descriptive passages, which tell us what happened. They explain something to us of what we see. Then there's prescriptive passages, which tell us what to do. Tell us how to obey a command or, or, or how specifically to follow God in a certain situation. There's some descriptive passages that refer to people falling down that many would use, who, who are proponents of being slain in the Spirit, who would use these passages to defend this experience. And so I want to look at them and see what conclusions we can draw. Second Chronicles 5.14, after the Ark of the Covenants brought into the temple, we're told the glory of the Lord was filling the temple. And the priests fell down. Matter of fact, the New American Standard says this, so the priests could not stand doesn't say any more than that. That's it. We can only, I think, really take it as it is. The priest could not stand. It doesn't say they fell backwards at all. There's no touch involved. We're just told nothing else. They could not stand. So we take it as it is. Acts 9, 3-4, the conversion of Paul. He's on the road to Damascus. Acts 9 tells us. And there's light from heaven flashes around him. And the text tells us he fell to the ground. That's all we're told. Nothing about backwards. He's alert. He hears Jesus. He actually responds. Matter of fact, there's others there watching who the text says were speechless. That's all we're told. I mean, is that enough to, I'm not sure that's enough to go on. Let's keep looking. Revelation 1.17, John has a vision of Jesus himself. Imagine, a vision of the risen, glorified Christ. John has this vision. And the text says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man. Now, although it says as a dead man, we know he could hear and understand because he wrote down what he heard and saw. But that's all we read. There's no touch, there's no crowd, there's nothing about going backwards, that's all we're told. People not being able to stand. Genesis 15. I've heard this one used, not quite sure why. God appears to Abraham. He's, God gives him, remember, the promise of a son and that he would have descendants as numerous as the sand of the seashore. God initiates this covenant. And we're told that Abraham fell into what's called a deep sleep as terror and great darkness fell upon him. That's very, very vague. I don't think we can really draw any conclusions from that. We're not even sure he fell down. We just know he fell into a deep sleep. 
1 Samuel 19. This is a unique passage, and if we, you think we got everything about the Holy Spirit filled out, read, uh, figured out, read this passage, and you'll leave shaking your head, scratching your head. God told Saul, I've anointed another king, David. Saul, not walking with God, clearly at this point becomes very jealous of David. And he seeks to capture him. But he can't do it. He sends out men, says, go get David. Well, the Holy Spirit come on these men. And they come back, hey, we, we, we didn't get him. And Saul, finally exasperated by the whole thing, he says, I'll go. And as Saul goes, eventually, the Holy Spirit comes on him and he prophesies. Amazing moment. And then we're told, his response is he stripped off his clothes and lay on the ground. You can't make this stuff up. I mean, it's the story. It's right there. Read it. What we don't know is why he lay on the ground, A. And he seems to be clearly alert because he stripped off his own clothes. And yet we're even not sure that that action's attributed to the Spirit. So as we look at 1 Samuel 19, we're probably left with more questions than answers. Um, but each in those cases, we read in individual experiences of people not being able to stand. But we also read, I guess you could call another grouping of passages, where people react to angelic or the presence of God. Numbers 22:31, we read of Balaam. After having a conversation with a donkey, yes, he had a conversation with a donkey, he speaks well of his spiritual condition. He saw an angel of the Lord. The text says he bowed all the way to the ground. That's all we know. We know he reacted to this angelic visit. There's multiple times in the book of Ezekiel where Ezekiel is face to face in a sense with the glory of God and he fell on his face before God. Yet we know he heard, he was awake and he was aware he was conscious of what was going on. But he had a reaction to the glory of God and he fell. He experienced something. And his response was one of awe. Matthew 17, 4 through 6. You might remember the account Peter, James, and John. The Mount of Transfiguration. The Father's voice comes from heaven. And we're told they fell on their face. As we would too, I'm pretty sure. They were heard, they were very conscious, they were very aware of what was going on, but in response to that moment, in response to the voice of the Father and the presence of Jesus Christ, they fell on their face. And in that culture, by the way, that was a sign of reverence, to fall on your face. Daniel 8, 17 through 18, an angel comes to Daniel, and we're told he was frightened, and he fell on his face. That's all we're told. It seems people were confronted with God's presence in a way that they were not used to. And they'd fall on their face in worship. Still alert, fully conscious, fully in control. None fell backwards. There was no crowd in the majority of cases. No leader laying hands on them. Experienced the presence of God. And as the psalmist said, let us worship and bow down, kneeling before the Lord our God, our maker. And they fell in the presence of God. John 18, 4 through 6. 
There's a Roman cohort coming to arrest Jesus. And they ask him, are you Jesus of Nazareth? He says, I am he. The soldiers, were told, felt fall to the ground, and they fell, it seems, the scripture, if I remember, says they drew back and then fell to the ground. Question, did they fall backwards? If they did, it was actually a bad thing because they came to address, arrest Jesus, not worship him. And so we have these descriptive passages. Falling before God, we have no description at all of these encounters of being slain in the spirit. The passages simply show us people's reaction to what they saw. Also, I find it highly significant that in the scripture's occurrence of falling, God had encountered people as individuals and had a special, not trivial, truth to communicate. And when God met these people, they were not in a corporate setting, and their response to the Lord was one of fear and awe. We see no visible, uncontrollable behavior anywhere that would resemble this phenomena of being slain in the Spirit. And we know that in every biblical record, when someone fell down in the presence of God, and the Lord or an angel, he fell on his face. Again, it's a sign of respect in that Eastern culture. They were not unconscious. They were told to get up before the angel would give him a message. According to biblical evidence, God seems considerably more interested in getting people to stand up and receive his word than to fall down in uncontrollable behavior. God has a word to speak to people, and he wants them to hear it. We see no biblical evidence of a minister of the Lord Jesus knocking people, I guess what is often called under the power. When people ministered to the people in Cornelius, when Peter ministered to the people in Cornelius' household in Acts 10, I find it interesting. They received the Holy Spirit was manifested, they were speaking in tongues, and while he was in the process of speaking to them, he did not lay a hand on them or even gesture toward them. And it seems one can look in vain for any biblical example of what has become all too common in circles these days, where ministers lay hands on people and expect them to fall down. We just don't see it. And if we were taken a principle... From 1 Corinthians 14, 23, different topic, but I think there's a principle relevant here. Paul says, if therefore the whole church assembles and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are mad or demonized? The topic is tongues, but the principle is that there's an out of control kind of everybody speaking in tongues and nobody seems to be know what's going on. It's, there's, there's confusion, basically. And those who would see this confusion would deduct from it, these people are mad. That's right there. Some believe that that Greek word has this idea of demonize. I'm not sure exactly. But at least it means that they think they were mad. And so Paul sternly sets forth that there should be no out of control, I'll use the word free for all, corporate gatherings. That, might come, that there might be some who come into the assembly and think that these believers were mad or crazy. This is, to me, a huge point. The Lord does not want to open the door for anyone to even think that Christians are out of their minds or unstable. The fact that many congregations today disobey this directive does not mean they're crazy, but it just means that an observer might think they are. So I think there's a principle to put forth here. Now, there is one prescriptive passage. 
It's a really unique one. I don't think we get much out of it. It's in Isaiah 28. There really isn't much here, but it is a prescriptive passage. And it does specifically speak about falling backwards, which this phenomena is. The context of Isaiah 28 is one of judgment. It's a prophecy of judgment uh, that captivity was predicted. That God would judge his people, they'd be taken captive. And in verse 7 through 8, we kind of get an idea of the condition of these people. These also reel with wine and stagger from strong drink, the priest and the prophet. Here's the spiritual leaders, okay? They reel with strong drink. They are confused by wine. They stagger from strong drink. They reel from, while having visions. They totter when rendering judgment. Okay, I, I notice those words, reel, stagger, confuse, stagger, reel, totter. I mean, there's, I mean there's, those words are all over there. The point of these people were engaged in drinking alcohol, and the, response, the result was they lived out the condition of what they were. They were drunk, and they showed it. That was the condition. That's what we're told at this particular moment. Now, as we go on, by the way, if you've ever noticed anybody who drinks a lot or drunk in state, you ever notice their behavior seems contrived, almost forced, how they almost they seem to they remove all the filters and their behavior comes considerably uh, out of character, I guess might be a way to put it. And in this particular situation, God's not really pleased with the behavior of his people and certainly not the spiritual leaders. And then we get to verse 10 through 13. For he says, order on order, under and under, on order on order, line on line, a little here, a little there. Indeed, he will speak to this people through stammering lips and a foreign tongue. He, will, he has said to them, here is rest, give rest to the weary, and here is repose, but they would not listen. So where the Lord... To them will be order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line, a little here, a little there, that they may go and stumble backward and be broken, snared, and taken captive. Now, if you look at verse 10 and verse 13, you're going, what on earth does that mean? Order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line, a little here, a little there. Uh, you're in good company. There's a lot of Hebrew scholars who are not quite sure what it means either. Um, but I think the majority of conclusions is it's, it's gibberish. The spiritual condition of the people was such that when they heard the word of God, they were so insensitive, it was gibberish to them. It was as if God was just speaking stammering things. They were so spiritually dull to what God was saying. In verse 13, so the word of the Lord came to them after this gibberish which they understood it, that they may go back and stumble backwards, be, be broken, snared, and taken captive. It says stumble backwards. We're not entirely sure they fell backwards. So we have an instance of someone at least stumbling backwards, but this is not a sign of blessing. This is not a good thing here. It's actually a sign of judgment associated with it. So I'm not sure this would be a, a situation that is even indicative of what we're talking about, but it is an example in Scripture of an experience of someone falling. But here would be my concern in summing, summing up some of this. The only description of someone falling backwards, like this experience, is in the context of God's judgment. It's not a sign of blessing. But as we look at the rest of Scripture, 
We do not see a single instance where someone is touched on the forehead, falls to the ground due to the presence of the Spirit. We're told no sign to seek this experience at all. But is that enough to conclude that this experience that we're in the process of discerning is not of God? I'm not sure it is. I'm not sure silence is strong enough necessarily to make an argument. However, it certainly should cause us to pull up short. Whether being slain in the spirit or falling in uncontrollable laughter, being drunk in the spirit, spirit, there certainly is no biblical support for it. I'm reading an interesting book this last week. I spent some time. J.I. Packer, who I have a great respect for, he had a pretty good warning in light of this. I thought it was pretty good. And he said the experience of those seeking experiences, intellectual and devotional preoccupation with the Holy Spirit tends to separate him from the Son whom he sent to glorify and the Father to whom the Son brings us. The result too often is a concentrated quest for intense experiences, emotional highs, supernatural communications, novel insights, exotic techniques, of pastoral therapy, and what he calls general piastic pizzazz, not closely linked with the objectives of faith and hope in Christ and the disciplines of keeping the Father's law. The experienced seeker's passion for physical and mental euphoria, he says health in the sense of feeling good and functioning well, reflects strong faith in the supernatural, and that is good, but also shows a feeble grasp of the moral realities of redemption, of the significance for our discipleship of self-denial, accepted weakness, and apparent failure, and of the spiritual values that belong to hard thought, sometimes frustrated endeavor, pain accepted, loss adjusted to, and steady faithfulness in life's more humdrum routines. I think what Packer's trying to get at is when there's too much emphasis on experiences, we can sometimes circumvent the process of discipleship, which isn't always easy, and so we got to be careful. That's why it's important we discern. But I do think there are some principles in Scripture that I think really give us greater clarity to this. As I said, we look at the descriptive passages, even the one prescriptive, and we got to scratch our head and say, I don't think there's really anything in these experiences that would support it. But we'd also have to say at the same time, I don't think anything here that would disprove that this was a biblical expression or not a biblical expression. But I do think there's a couple principles that help us even more. The first exhortation is in 1 Peter 1, 13 through 16. And again, this, these need to be carried out and evaluate any experience. We're just going through a process of using this, um, this particular experience as a chance for you and I to understand the process of discerning. 1 Peter 1, 13 through 16. Therefore, gird your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Commands are given here. Look at verse 13, you see them right away. Gird your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Be alert. Be fully sober. Those are the commands given by Peter. 
And he says, be holy in all your behavior. The whole idea, obviously, of holy is this idea of being set apart for God. So if you bow in a meeting, does this reflect the holiness of God? Could very well. I mean, it could be a very right and appropriate response. Absolutely. But does that experience maybe reflect the holiness of behavior? It, if it's of the Holy Spirit, it will reflect that which is holy in regard to behavior. So we need to think, when others are, in many cases, being slain, the Spirit knocked down, when there's uncontrollable shaking, does that reflect that which is holy in regard to behavior? Is it living sober-mindedly? Is it being alert? Is it having a focused mind? I'm not sure it does. I think this is a principle we would hold up against that behavior and be able to step back and say, whoa, this principle seems to be in contrast to this experience, the one we're talking about. I do want to say this. I do feel, in, in my interactions with people over the years, just because someone has had this experience doesn't mean they weren't hungry for God. I know many people who've been hungry for God, long for more of God, who earnestly sought God's direction and leading, and they went to an experience like this. Does that make them a bad Christian? Of course not. Someone we should judge? Of course not. Someone who, in their Christian discipleship, should discern this behavior? Absolutely. Someone we should maybe come alongside and help them discern this experience or any other experience? Absolutely. Let's be slow to judge, please. Let's be quick to affirm people and help them in their discipleship. But I think this principle would be one we could come alongside others and certainly with ourselves be able to hold up an experience and say this seems to be contradiction to what Peter's saying here. There's another passage I think is very helpful to us. And this ties into something we talked about a few weeks ago. I find it in Matthew, chapter 7, verses 15 through 20. Jesus speaking, he says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. There are wolves out there. We need to be careful. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from the thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. Good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown to the fire. So then, you will know them by their fruits. I'm a pretty simple guy, but it seems Jesus is giving us a guide to evaluate people involved with experiences. That is Fruit. If someone who's leading an experience or someone we go to, a question that is a very fitting question is, what's their fruit like? By their fruit, you'll recognize whether this is a valid experience or one that we should stay away from. The question would be, what's bad fruit? I mean, in order to know if fruit's good, I need to know what's bad. And to know what's bad, I need to know what's good. Well, we talked a few weeks ago about the fruit of the Spirit. And here's what 
Paul tells us the fruit of the Spirit is. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such thing there is no law. It would seem to me that the opposite of bad fruit is the fruit of the Spirit. And as we look at experiences or those who would lead them, the question I think we would add is what's coming out of there is what's coming out the fruit of the Spirit. And one of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. And I think that's very important. I don't think the Holy Spirit will ever contradict the fruit he's trying to produce in us. He'll always be true to his character. He will not endorse what's contrary to what he's producing in you. So don't pursue these, I guess you could call it out-of-control experiences. Pursue living out the fruit of the Spirit. And as I think we put this all together regarding this experience of being slain in the Spirit or like experiences, I have three conclusions. I would say, one, definitely do not seek them. The Bible gives no positive example. We're never commanded nor encouraged. What we are given is principles that would cause you and I to live a life where we're alert, we're self-controlled, our mind is engaged in biblical truth and keeping in step with the Spirit. I would say definitely do not seek. I would say take a look at fruit of any experience, certainly this one, but any experience or any ministry. Ask yourself, Am I seeing a demonstration of the fruit of the Spirit? And number three, walk in the Spirit. Focus on Christ, not the experience. Make a difference for God. So the Holy Spirit empowers you to do. Live out his fruit that he's producing in you. And glorify Christ in all things. The Holy Spirit will always point you and I there. It should be our focus. Personally, and it indeed is our focus here at Elam. I, and, and I know we share this conviction that you and I would never want to quench the Spirit, but to let him lead us, guide us, empower us to win lost people to Jesus, to transform us individually and corporately so there's a supernatural bond of unity, that there's evidences of the fruit of the Spirit that no one can deny that are nothing short of supernatural. That there be the work of the Spirit in our midst corporately that we know is of God and would draw us and point us to Christ. It's to this I seek God for. And let this be our experience together. Let's pray. Lord, this morning we've endeavored, and I hope to some degree succeeded, and we trust your Spirit that We've been able to look at your word and find some principles of how we can obey you more fully and keep in step with your spirit, not get ahead or lag behind or quench, but to keep in step with your spirit. And Lord, that's my prayer, that we individually and corporately would keep in step and experience all that you have for us. And Lord, you'd also help us to be discerning in a world that certainly has alluring things that are not always of you. Cause us to be discerning, oh God. So that in all things, you would be praised and honored, Jesus. You would be lifted up. And you would be exalted. And that the world would see that you are the one Savior. 
It's your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.